Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday, another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. This episode is being recorded on October 22nd. But on October 24th, which is going to happen over the weekend, there is an anniversary date in the true crime world. 60 years ago, Joan Risch disappeared from Lincoln, Massachusetts, and what has happened to her has been a mystery. It's hard to believe that um, it's been 60 years. I began learning about Joan Risch in 2017. One of the cases that I learned about from Wikipedia, when they just showed a related article, it said the disappearance of Joan Risch, what is that? And I began reading the Wikipedia page, and then one thing led to another, and I became rather immersed in that material for the year of 2017. And I made a series of recordings for this channel, Black Box Online Radio, which are still up, but they were done in the, what I call the old-fashioned black box recording, where there was just a black box on the screen, and it was done as a pure podcast. So I wanted to do something to, to remember Joan Risch this year, because it is the 60th anniversary of her disappearance, but also because the show is coming out in somewhat of an updated version. And the first, um point is, well, let's just have a little bit of an introduction to the case, and I confess that in the four years that have passed since 2017, I became somewhat rusty, so I did go back and refresh a lot of the information, and I'll be citing the sources throughout, but just to recall some things from memory, Joan Risch disappeared on October 24th of 1961. Her husband, Martin Risch, whom she lived with in Lincoln, Massachusetts, went on a business trip that day. I believe he um, actually left at 8 o'clock in the morning, and Joan had a dentist appointment. She went to see the dentist. She even scheduled a follow-up appointment, and Joan lived with her husband, Martin, and their two children, Lillian and David. So she actually, I believe Lillian actually went to the dentist with her and just waited, but the fact that she scheduled a follow-up appointment and then went on to go missing is something that people read a lot into. But Lillian is going back and forth between the Rish house and another family's house, who are the Barkers, who live somewhat nearby. But there aren't exactly next-door neighbors, and we'll see something very important about that later on. Then, sometime in the afternoon, Joan was witnessed, seen carrying something red in her hands, and she was walking with outstretched arms, carrying something red. And that is um, one of the last confirmed sightings of Joan Risch. Also, there was a sighting of a rather unusual car in the Risch driveway at some time in the afternoon. And just glancing at one source, it says 3.30 was the sighting for the suspicious vehicle. Joan's older child was Lillian and the younger child was the boy, David. So Lillian comes home in the afternoon, and then she goes back to the place that was uh, babysitting her, the neighbors across the way, for lack of a better term, and says, somebody has smeared red paint all over the kitchen. And it wasn't red paint, it was actually human blood. The baby, David, was upstairs asleep in his bed, which in some places they say it's a crib, in other places they say that it's a cot. And what happened to Joan is a mystery. Now, Joan was using a large overcoat when she went to 
see the dentist in the morning. However, that larger coat was left behind. Her lighter jacket was taken, which I believe is actually something just like a lighter overcoat. That was the one that was missing from her closet. So you could simply say, well, she went to the dentist early in the morning, and I'm from West Virginia. I think that it would be the same in most parts of the United States of America, where it's going to be a lot colder in the morning, and it really warms up by the mid to late afternoon, and the temperatures just simply warmer. Does that show that Joan was somewhat aware of her mental faculties when she disappeared? Well, let's read some sources, and let's just have a quick discussion through this. One thing that I did not know back in 2017 was that there were going to be an enormous amount of attention on this case because of the internet, particularly through YouTubers, but also there have been several books that have been written about the case, and I'll read the description now of A Kitchen Painted in Blood, The Unsolved Disappearance of Joan Risch, and this one was written by Stephen H. Ahern. On October 24, 1961, Massachusetts wife and mother Joan Risch vanished seemingly into thin air. Even with her children home and neighbors nearby, Joan disappeared from her upscale suburban house, never to be heard from again. The search that followed was one of the most intensive investigations of its time, but detectives were unable to identify any suspects. Using extensive police case files and hundreds of newspaper articles written about the disappearance, this book carefully explores the story of Joan Risch and the investigation into her disappearance. With the assistance of a former FBI criminal profiler and an L.A. cold case detective, this book previously reports on undisclosed facts from the investigation, including multiple witness statements. And that's just it. There is an enormous amount of information about what happened to Joan Ray. Some of the info that I laid out that she had went to the dentist, she had returned home, she had scheduled the follow-up appointment, but... Blood was found in numerous places in the house, particularly in the kitchen, and it appeared that someone had tried to clean up the blood, even to the point when someone had used a pair of her son's overalls, like the little overalls that a child would wear, and tried to clean up the blood with the pair of overalls and discarded them. There was also a waste basket or like a trash bin, but a very small one that had been moved to the center of the kitchen, which is normally, it was normally kept under the sink. And because I was rusty on the information, I decided to pull up the strange disappearance of Joan Grish from the Crime Time podcast. Crime Time was something that I had never heard of before. I wasn't familiar with this channel. It is a group podcast that was done by a series of YouTubers, or I shouldn't have said that, a group of YouTubers do this crime series. And they did an episode on Joan Rich, and they had some very interesting theories to share about um, what happened to Joan. Now, back in 2017, we're going to see one of our theories is going to collide, Crime Time and me. I said I learned about this from Wikipedia, right? So I was just reading about what happened to Joan Rish, and on my own, I thought of this was a botched abortion because of numerous things. The sighting of the um, of that bizarre car, or just the fact that it was in 1961, and abortion wasn't legal in the United States until the 1970s. Not to mention there's blood, but it doesn't appear that there was blood that would have come from 
and a fatal wound to Joan. And the disappearance of Joan Rich was one of the first times that I actually just had the opportunity to sit down and talk to another human being about true crime cases. Just asking somebody, hey, I've, I learned about this story. What do you think about that? We were exchanging some messages back and forth for a while. And there are some other details that have been, been encountered with the disappearance of Joan Rich. A liquor bottle was found that her husband, Martin, and Joan had consumed previously, and there were also some beer bottles that had been found that, in many sources, it states that Martin just did not know where they had come from. He couldn't find an explanation for that. And when I was sharing this info with someone that I was talking to back in 2017, she said something to the effect of, she may not have wanted the pregnancy. If she were indeed pregnant, she didn't want the pregnancy. And I was like, well, how would you know that? She's saying, of course, I don't know 100%, but you're not supposed to drink alcohol when you're pregnant. And I was like, okay, I'm not a medical doctor, but I don't think drinking alcohol immediately causes a miscarriage. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it's not. And I began to read up online about beer bottles. I mean, not really bottles, but about the beer itself. And I found one of the more bizarre parts of the internet and all of these sources just on forums and threads about someone saying, hey, I'm pregnant and I don't want the baby. I want an abortion, but I don't want anyone to find out. How do I do it myself? And then people are like, okay, here's how you do it. And all of these home-concocted abortion remedies were available online and not really my area. That's a part of YouTube I don't really not YouTube, but a part of the internet that I don't want to go back to because it was just, oh yeah, well, you need an abortion, here's how you do it. But some of the methods that they used involved beer. There are numerous methods of home-induced abortions using beer. Beer with aspirin, beer with salt, and there's even this Caribbean remedy where um, you boil a bunch of spices and beer and on the stove, and um, you would have to yeah, make this potion, more or less, even though it doesn't have any magical powers. It's just beer with a bunch of other ingredients, and that's how you would perform an, an abortion. But um, I thought that you were supposed to drink it, but one of you guys in the comments section uh, back in 2017, mind you, said that they believe that you're actually supposed to apply the beer mixtures, whether it's with aspirin, salt, or spices, directly to the uterus, and that causes the abortion. Now, was Joan trying to do some type of home-performed abortion? Well, I had the opportunity to correspond with the researcher Carla Barbosa numerous times. She just started listening to the channel, replying in the comments section, and we went back and forth many times about the disappearance of Joan Risch. And Carla was an excellent researcher. She went through a lot of the news coverage going back to the 1960s, and her research discovered some new material about the disappearance of Joan Risch. And more or less, it is an urban myth, according to her, that there were these beer bottles that came from some unknown source on the Rish property the day that Joan disappeared. And um, I'll just read some of the comments that she had written out, which um, simply says that um, you can access the police report at Joan Rish Doctoroid. In his statement, Martin Rish says they had beer with their guests. He is very clear on this fact, so... They had a bottle of liquor that 
Joan and Martin shared together pre previously, the night before, and they had guests a couple days before, and that's where the beer bottles came from. And my response to Carla on that point was that it also just makes sense from a logical standpoint, and it gets rid of that wild loose end that opens the door for far-out theory, simplest explanation and all. And that really is the case, because I always thought that that was this bizarre thing. Like, if you ever go to any YouTube source about the disappearance of Joan Rish, other than the, that episode that I just cited on Black Box Online Radio that talks about beer bottles found after the disappearance, you'll hear somebody say, there are these beer bottles that were found on the premises, and nobody could figure out where they were from. Well, I think that... If we cut out that loose end, that means that Joan wasn't hiding some dark and mysterious secret from her husband, because so many people use that to think, oh, she was having an affair, and that she had a man over in the house while her daughter Lillian was away at the, um, being babysat by somebody else, or on the play date with the, uh, boy from across the way. I mean, people just use that as a way to think that Joan was hiding something, even if she's just a housewife who's doing some day drinking by herself. Now, I did say that there was that sighting of um, Joan Rish by the neighbors from what should have been about 100 meters away, and she is walking with outstretched arms and carrying something red. And both Carla and I pointed out that that is a very bizarre thing to recall about somebody, especially if you're looking at them from such a substantial distance, and you aren't expected to remember this. And the uh, thing that I said in the past was, it's like saying, Hey, when did you last see Jimmy? Oh, um, about 3.30 uh, p.m. on October 24th, and he was walking 100 meters away from me, and he had outstretched arms, and he was carrying something red. I'm also somewhat skeptical about that, because if this is true that these beer bottles were just from guests that they had had a couple nights before, then that throws water on a lot of the other details in the case. Or it goes to show that there is this term about fantasy-filled journalism that is being reported in a scandalous way. They're trying to create a scandal. Because in the past, I thought that these beer bottles may have been that red item that maybe she's carrying, like, the beer. And, like, maybe imagine a six-pack that has some type of red packaging on it. Or maybe it was just um a bag of some sort. And that she was going out to the car and then she walks out carrying the beer with um in, into the house. And that she was just doing some day drinking. Or it was a home-induced abortion. But the investigation into the disappearance of Joan Rish took several turns. It goes way beyond just finding some beer bottles and then learning out that it is an urban myth that Martin knew nothing about them, and he said that they were from guests a couple nights before. It goes way beyond that, because they searched for fingerprints, and they found unidentified fingerprints in the house, as well as a palm print on the wall. In the past, I simply disputed this, I didn't believe that that was real. I thought that it must be a mistake some way, somehow. Because back in 2017, I would talk about my theories online, and I would say, okay, here's a true crime case. Here's what I think happened. And I would compose a theory. And the reason I don't do that anymore is because I was wrong every single time. You can't just watch five or six YouTube videos and then figure out what happened in a mystery. Okay, I learned that through the School of Hard Knocks. I'm sure you guys already knew that anyway. But... I mean, we're different people, and so on. I digress from that. So there's this palm print that is on the wall that was not 
match to Joan. And another thing that they talked about on the Crime Time channel, the Strange Disappearance of Joan Rish Crime Time podcast, they said that eventually Joan's fingerprints were identified because of a record that was found, but that came a month later. They had these fingerprints in the house, and I was always wondering, I'm certain they could tell that something belonged to Joan or not. I mean, you got to imagine things like a hairbrush or something in the bathroom that she probably would have touched, like a feminine product that she would have touched that day that would have had her fingerprints on it and for all intents and purposes they could figure out that okay these two are the same this is most likely jones i know that's not forensic science but i mean it's just common sense is it would be most likely from hers they they would have jones fingerprints all over the house right but the police did something to that effect and they just assumed that this set of prints was from joan rish and the other palm print on the wall was not from hers and they used um a record that they obtained a month later and they confirmed that okay they found jones fingerprints in the house that palm print on the wall is from an unidentified person and it was carla who initially shared the um document with me that proved that there was a second person in the house now to what capacity we aren't 100 percent sure i mean did somebody just come in from the that mystery car just to have a chat hey joan how's it going i was just in the neighborhood i thought i would knock on by and just say hi and then get out i mean like is that just like what happened um or was there something darker and sinister going on was it actually an abortionist? I mean, there are numerous possibilities. And with the disappearance of Joan Rish, I think one of the reasons why this case is so fascinating is because any time you formulate a theory and any time you investigate, you either hit the wall or the possibilities just lead to more questions. Okay, so there's this palm print on the wall that suggests that there was a second person in the house. And I have to cite Kaylee Elise for a lot of this, the YouTuber, because she was the one who put the nutshell version out there saying... The whole idea that Joan was trying to do the abortion herself, which was something that I thought of on my own, that isn't going to work because what Kaylee Elise said was, I'm seeing two people in the house the day that Joan vanished. Now, after Joan's disappearance, there were a couple sightings of a woman matching her description that, if I understand correctly, she was seen walking along the median of route to a not on the side of the road but it's actually one of those grassy medians maybe if you've seen like a dual lane highway there's a little space in between the road the grassy median and the woman was seen walking and had blood running down her legs and if anything that is one of the largest most widely pointed out details in the case when people are just saying, how on earth could people be driving past? They see a woman walking with blood running down her legs, and they don't stop to help her. What on earth is going on with these people? And the first point is, just because someone is injured or they have blood on them, it doesn't mean that people are going to stop. Cynthia Haramio was a woman who escaped from the serial killer David Parker Ray, who was um the toy box killer. She's being held in this torture chamber. She's completely naked when she escaped, except she had a chain around her neck, and she's running, and she's trying to, like, wave down cars, and she even hits somebody's window once. As they drive by, they just keep on driving. A completely naked woman with a chain around her neck. Sometimes people don't stop. But this is another um point that Carla wanted to share with me about clearing up another urban myth. And I'll read one of Carla's comments that came in in 2019. I wanted to give you a follow-up of my research. 
I thought I found all there was about the case, but I was wrong. I found some interesting info in some newspaper articles. The sightings of Joan Rish were not reported until a month after her disappearance. That's a long time to recall anything. One woman said she was wearing heeled shoes, and we know Joan was wearing sneakers. Also, bloodhounds only traced her scent back and forth to the Barker house, not through the woods on Route 2A. The detectives think the assault began by the car, which explains the blood on the car hood. As if she was hit and fell over the hood, this leads into the side door and to the phone where there was blood in the dials. To the left, the phone and the bloody unidentified palm and thumbprint. The phone cord is ripped out and the handle may have been used as a weapon. At some point, Somebody walked upstairs, and the dripping blood is not just drops, that, and, and is, it is not just a lot of drops. It then trails back down the stairs. They didn't touch anything. They just seemed to look around and then back downstairs. Joan is taken from the property by this assailant in most likely the two-tone car that was seen more than once. If the car was there before, then it wasn't a stranger, if those sights of the car are correct. But let's take a look at Martin Risch. The police gave him a quick review and decided that he had nothing to do with this. But is it possible they were wrong? I was able to learn some info about the Rishes before they moved to Lincoln. All the neighbors said Joan was a great person and a good mom. Martin, on the other hand, was very cold and not friendly to many people. The guy who shared his office at Fitchburg said that Martin never mentioned his wife even once. Okay, maybe he's a private person. But let's look at what he did that day. He went to meetings. He window shopped. He got a hotel room. He had dinner. He read the paper. He never called his wife once, even though there was a telephone nearby several times that day. Martin traveled for work and was sometimes away for a week at, at a time. To me, that's strange. Didn't he care? I mean, she was alone with two children. Also, his behavior after she vanished. He didn't seem to look for her, and he had very few interviews. In one press conference, he was nasty and abruptly turned around and turned his back in the house. Never once did he say that he loved her or please let her go. Weird. Also, he didn't seem intent on keeping her memory alive for his children. It's just like he wiped her away. It's just odd. She was not mentioned in his obituary, and the family has no mention of her on her their Facebook pages. Not a photo or remembrance. Nothing. Big thank you to Carla for sharing all of this with me, and I think the most valuable thing in here is that maybe people aren't completely sure what they saw, and if people are backtracking and a month later they come up with these witness descriptions... They're not super reliable. They may not even have happened at all. So that could be clearing up urban myth number two, that there's a sighting of a bloody woman seen walking on the median of a highway. Maybe it never even happened. But then what did happen to Joan? And I think that comment there was insinuating that Martin Risch may have known a lot more about her disappearance. His theory, Martin Risch's theory, is that Joan had some type of episode, whether it was a mental episode or it was indeed some type of bleeding, that, well, where's this blood coming from? Could it have come from a hemorrhage? Just because there's blood all over the kitchen and people are hypothesizing about a botched abortion, it doesn't necessarily mean that there was an abortion. It could have been a miscarriage. And back in 2017, when I was looking into this, I didn't find too many sources online stating that um, they thought that Joan was murdered. Just from reading comments on forums and anything I could get my hands on, really, I found that the overwhelming consensus was that Joan Rish 
was just living a normal day and that she had a miscarriage or some type of internal bleeding and it caused her to experience a lot of, um, I guess you'd say overwhelming trauma or she lost awareness of her mental faculties and that she simply wandered out. Maybe she was trying to get help, hence the emergency um, numbers that Carla was talking about. And to provide a little bit of detail, a book was pulled out, a phone book was pulled out, and it was open to the emergency numbers page, but no one was called. The phone was then ripped out of the wall and placed into that wastebasket that was in the center of the kitchen. So some people interpret that as maybe Joan tried to call 911, or sorry, 911 wasn't a big thing back then in 1961. She's trying to call the emergency numbers from the um, from the telephone book, but the abortionist or somebody else pulled out the phone and placed it in the, the, in the trash can, first dropping it and then pulling the trash can upright and putting the phone receiver in a certain way. I'll say something about that later on. But they wanted to prevent Joan from calling emergency numbers because the abortion was illegal. The doctor or abortionist could go to jail or even some other types of consequences, fines, losing a medical license, whatever um, the consequences may be. So then that person forced Joan into a car and did something to her. That would be more in line with a murder theory. But then the thing that people were talking about in 2017, their theory, was that Joan was just disoriented. She entered a disoriented state. She was bleeding. She tried to pull the phone book out. She's trying to look for emergency numbers, and she can't read. She can't see clearly. She grabs her light jacket, which is um, like a lighter overcoat, and she's just going to try to walk to meet help. Or to get help, but she's just losing awareness with each step. And at some point, she wandered into a construction pit, and she fell and passed away. And as you see, I'm not endorsing any particular theory. I'm just putting them all on the table. At this point, is there something that makes sense to you? Is there something that seems like it's standing out above the other ones? That this was a botched abortion, or that this was a murder? On the Crime Time podcast... They proposed something that was a little bit different. First, I originally heard this from Carla, but they said this on Crime Time as well, that the blood was analyzed by a laboratory at Harvard, and it was determined to have come from a hemorrhage, meaning that Joan had some type of internal bleeding. So that str strongly suggests that it was an abortion or a miscarriage. But what they suggested was that Joan Risch was most likely dealing with some type of mental illness, and they didn't say this in these exact terms, I'm paraphrasing, but that she's dealing with some type of mental illness. She may have had bipolar disorder, and she could have experienced something like a miscarriage, had a manic episode, which would explain all the bizarre behavior, like trying to clean up the, um, the blood with a pair of overalls, and then... She just abandoned that, pulled the receiver, the phone out of the wall and placed the receiver in the trash can. And then she um, walked away. And in this manic episode, she accidentally passed away at some point, could have fallen into that construction pit. Something else could have happened to her. Now, I'll just get to that thing about the phone receiver. 
the YouTuber Sophie Unsolved did an episode on the disappearance of Joan Rish, and she brought up a lot of info, and I have to introduce this in somewhat of a twisted way. Okay, so somebody, a journalist, wanted to cover the story in 1961, and this is a couple weeks after Joan disappeared, and she goes to the library, and she wants to read up on mysteries and disappearances, and she picks up a book about mysteries and disappearances, and she sees that it was checked out by Joan Rish. And then she got another book from the library, and she also saw that it was checked out by Joan Rish, like how they used to have library um, cards in the back. Do you remember those things? I'm sure most of you guys are old enough to remember that. That's the way we did that, where you could see the name of every person who had checked it out, and their name was posted in the back. Now, of course, um, everything's done with computers. Those damn kids and their TikTok ruined everything. But anyway, there um, are these cards that have the name on the back, and the back of the book also said Joan Rish. That's another book. And it turned out that Joan had read at least 25 books from the library. Most of them were about missing persons, disappearances, unsolved mysteries. So this created the theory that Joan staged the disappearance, that this was done as somewhat of a ruse. She's 31 years old. She came from a bizarre upbringing. Her parents died in a strange house fire, a bizarre and mysterious house fire, and then she was taken in, I believe, by her aunt and uncle. But then they, she also had two foster brothers and sisters. So, Joan has already experienced a lot of emotional trauma in her life. And did she get so caught up reading about missing persons cases that she wanted to insert herself into one? And that one of the books is called Into Thin Air, and the other is called The 27th Wife, which is about uh, the disappearance of Brigham Young's 27th wife, Brigham Young from the Mormon Church. And Into Thin Air, I think, was the one that truly laid out a disappearance that was done in a very similar way. Now, is it possible that Joan completely staged the disappearance? Maybe. Perhaps. But... This is an unsolved case. Anything is possible. And how would you explain blood coming from a hemorrhage? And how do, how would you explain the palm print on the wall from somebody who wasn't involved with that? Did her other lover show up and assist her in some way? Did somebody else come along at some point throughout the day for an unrelated reason? I mean, just somebody, as I said, coming to drop off um, a cup of sugar that they had borrowed the last week. I don't know what people did in the 1960s. I wasn't born yet. When I first read about Joan Rish on that Wikipedia page, I think the thing that pulled me into it was that there was this line about Joan had a fascination with mysteries and uh, disappearances and unsolved cases, and I was like, oh my gosh, she probably staged her disappearance. Gut instinct. Initial reaction. All, all I knew about Joan was that her, her name, she disappeared in 1961, and there was that line there. I was like, she probably staged the disappearance. That was my gut instinct. But the more that I read about the case, I began to think this could have been either an abortion or a miscarriage, and that's the reason for the blood all over the house. And they even brought up that additional point on uh, Crime Time about Maybe she did indeed have bipolar disorder or some type of undiagnosed mental illness or some type of mental illness, period. And 
that she experienced something very traumatic and she responded in an unpredictable way, which meant rearranging items in her house, turning over a table, pulling the phone out of the wall, and because she was disoriented, she was having an episode, and then she wandered out. But to focus on this mysteries angle, I said the YouTuber Sophie Unsolved did a very big breakdown on this, and I don't know if that video is still out there because I was looking for it recently and I couldn't find it. But her observation was, and I think that this is brilliant, is that there's this phone that is in the trash can, and the receiver to the phone is hanging on the edge. And what she said was, you can't physically drop a phone in, the tr in a wastebasket and have the phone hang on the edge like that. It had to have been gently placed there. And, I mean, I completely agree with that assessment. If you were to drop a phone in a wastebasket in any way, then it would not end up like that. It would either fall over, the receiver would fall to the edge, and even if somebody in a disoriented state pulled the wastebasket back up, they wouldn't have, in a calculated way, have placed the receiver on the edge. It's like it had to have been placed that way, meaning that somebody had done it in a very gentle manner. And I began to think, oh my goodness, maybe she's right. Maybe that's the answer to everything, that Joan had this fascination with mystery novels. And not even just mystery novels, but also nonfiction. It's missing persons, cases, disappearances. She had this overwhelming desire to incorporate herself into the story. And also, they, um, the reason why Crime Time is talking about how she may have had either bipolar disorder or some type of other mental illness, well, similar disorders would encourage the type of obsession with something like reading 25 books. I just have to read more and more, just getting so focused and super zoned in on something. Although some people are just like that, period. I'm like that with the true crime world. And that's the biggest rebuttal to this whole thing of Joan staging her disappearance. She liked mysteries. She liked true crime. So do you. So do I. And I've always wondered that, like, I mean, I now have more than a thousand episodes of Black Box Online Radio. I always invite you to like and subscribe. But if I were to ever be involved with some type of legal proceeding, everyone would just say that. Oh, well, he was really into true crime and mysteries. He wanted to insert himself into the case. And they would just jump to that conclusion immediately. If they were to go through your browser history and your liked videos on YouTube and the comments that you've read and the things that you may have posted on forums, they would think, hey, this person was reading and listening to material about mysteries. Maybe they wanted to insert themselves into the case. It's not enough. It's insufficient reason. And now I understand the forensic world a little bit more than I did in 2017 and 18. And that statement about Sophie Unsolved is almost completely correct. You can't physically drop a phone into a wastebasket that way. But how do we know that um, it was Joan who specifically, and in a calculated and deliberate way, placed the phone there to stage the, dis the disappearance? We don't. That could have happened at any time. And I'm not going to kid ourselves. People go in and out of the house. Lillian Rish is in the house and says that there's this um, red paint on the wall. There are numerous ways that that could have happened. It doesn't necessarily have to be Joan gently placing the receiver on the edge. And Carla, as I said, who is a very passionate and dedicated researcher to the case, proposed an additional theory, which was that there was supposed to be the sale of land to create a national park 
in Massachusetts. And did somebody come to the Rish house and have a conversation with Joan Rish? And Joan and Martin had just moved into the house six months prior. Perhaps Joan did not want to go along with the sale of the land. She didn't want to sell her property. She didn't want anything to do that. No, I want to stay here. We've just moved here. We just got two kids. We're going to live here forever. But that means the other people in the community wouldn't be able to sell their land. And some type of dispute, confrontation kicked off. Maybe the stress of the argument caused Joan to have a miscarriage and somebody panicked. And then they may have even assaulted Joan in some way because they got really scared. They thought that, oh, she's bleeding already. They wanted to cover up any any info about them being in the house, any evidence of them being in the house. As far as the blood evidence goes, the blood is in the kitchen. I believe it's about a cup of blood in total. It looks like a lot more because it's been smeared around. But there's also blood by the Rish car. And there was one drop on the car that was in a very odd place. And the authorities who investigate this stuff professionally thought that that drop of blood was the most confusing thing. But then there is blood that is found in the baby's bedroom, which is walking up the stairs. So I believe that, if I understand correctly, they think somebody started bleeding downstairs. And then they walked upstairs and... That was a point that I, um, well, I think it's the reason that Carla and I started exchanging ideas about this, because she was putting forward this theory about how there was possibly an assault or attempted murder on Joan Rich because of the sale of the land for the National Park, and that Joan didn't want to cooperate with the sale. She thought it was a bad idea, and then other people in the neighborhood wouldn't be able to sell their property and to cash in on this, on this, um, sale so that somebody went over to the house to talk to her about it and this argument kicked off and that person did something that ultimately led to her death but i was like if that were the case if it's an argument why on earth would there be blood in the baby's bedroom upstairs and david is in the cot or crib whatever whatever they're describing it as why on earth would there be any blood evidence there at all so and her response was, someone may have gone up just to see if there was someone else in the house, just to see if there was a witness. They looked in the baby's bedroom. Okay, there's um, a baby who's just asleep in the crib. Even if the baby's crying, well, the baby's not going to remember anything. So just walk back downstairs and force Joan into a car in some way and get it, get the flip out of there. So, And finally, Martin Rich has proposed um, his own theory, and that was simply that Joan had amnesia and that she had some type of event that caused her to lose a lot of blood. And she had amnesia, she lost her memory, she wandered away, never got it back, never had any idea of who, of where she was. Carla brought up an interesting point about that, saying that, well, if she had just wandered away, she didn't turn up at any hospitals, because people are looking for her. I also think it's really interesting that Carla wrote the comment out that way, talking about the suspicious behavior surrounding Martin Rich, because she's been very good at clearing up urban myths. However, there um, are a lot of sources online, even that Crime Time podcast that I was talking about, because that they state that Martin's just a loving husband, that everything is going well in the marriage. But what Carla was saying is that everybody says that Joan is actually the loving and friendly person, and then Martin is rather cold and not exactly a recluse, but he doesn't um, 
talk about his life. He's a very private person, is what she said. So, the authorities looked into Martin and they cleared him. That's all I can say about that. As far as his amnesia theory, I believe, um, well, I know that one of the um, authors I was talking about had their theory that Joan did indeed leave the house alive, and she remained alive, and she went on to live her life into her elder years somewhere in between Massachusetts and New York. That is a theory that people have, and amnesia or not. You'd have to think, though, like, with amnesia, that she just completely forgot everything. I guess it is possible. I mean, it definitely is possible. People do have amnesia like that, but, um... I'm just um, rather uncertain on that. And I said there were a couple books about the case. One of them is called Masquerade, and it is by Michael C. Bouchard. And I will read the description of that one right here. On October 24th of 1961, Joan Rish, a housewife and mother, returned from a dentist appointment with her daughter Lillian. Several hours later, Joan mysteriously disappeared from Lincoln, Massachusetts. A bloodstained kitchen and conflicting witness testimony began a 60-year investigation into the disappearance that continues even to this day. The book Masquerade is based on the original 5,127-page police report and contains information never released to the public. If you liked Gone Girl, you will like this book. Um, as far as Gone Girl, I think they even made that into a movie. I know that that was a book that was very popular for a while. I haven't read that, so I can't comment on that. I just wanted to point out that there was another website that was comparing the disappearance of Joan Rish to Gone Girl. But I um, would just like to do a little bit of recapping right now, because I know that this was all over the place. But the theories that are involved with the disappearance of Joan Rish. She goes to the dentist, schedules a follow-up appointment, and everyone thinks that she's just going to carry on with her normal life. Her daughter's at a play date. It all seems like normal behavior. Then theory number one, that there was a murder, that somebody came into Joan's house and an altercation kicked off. That person murdered Joan and took the body out of the house and Joan was never seen again. Theory number two. Joan had a botched abortion or miscarriage. We'll just put one of those those two together. They don't have to be the same, but that explains why there is the blood. I guess you do have to make the differentiation that um, that the abortion was performed and it was botched, and the abortionist murdered Joan Webster. Joan Rish, excuse me, Joan Webster. We'll talk about her later on. But... The third one would be the miscarriage, that Joan lost the blood because of the miscarriage. She grabbed her overcoat, and then she walked out of the house, leaving on her own free will. Now, there are no witness sightings of that, but there also there's no one who witnessed Joan Rish leaving the home. So, I mean, that it's, it's the same in my opinion. There's just no witness sighting to confirm that. There is this two-tone car that is seen before the police arrived. The police explanation was that the witnesses just didn't know what they were talking about. They said, no, that was the first car on the scene was an unmarked police cruiser. And I don't, I, I still do not understand why they think that the witnesses did not actually see a, a, a car in the driveway at that time. The third one is that Joan was having an affair and that, that she left also on her own accord and that she staged the disappearance. Or let's just put that all together. Joan staged the disappearance. She was obsessed with reading 
mysteries and novels and um, true crime books, and she liked learning about missing persons cases. One point that I had never heard before on on Crime Time was that um, her husband, Martin Risch, made the comment that he didn't even know that Joan was completely into true crime. Instead, he said she was into suspense and thrillers, and that's what um, he more understood it as. And that means that it's not just about this obsession of disappearing. It's rather she's just into thrillers because they're exhilarating. So that's another point, um, that there is the um, leaving on her own accord, that she was involved with a botched abortion, that it was a miscarriage that caused disorientation, or that she was indeed murdered. Is there any particular theory that makes sense to you? And if there's one that you didn't hear about in this episode, feel free to put that down in the comments section down below. If Carla's uh, research is correct, then I think it really clears up a lot about how the beer bottles were meant to... Um, well, they came from a party or hosting guests that Joan didn't have any dark secret she's hiding from her husband. and Or um, maybe crime time is completely right that she just had some type of psychological breakdown and because she was having a miscarriage and that she left the house and then she wandered into a dangerous situation. And the one reason that they use, um, or piece of evidence they use to support this theory is that Joan Rish's son, David, would go on to be involved with his own missing persons case. He was actually staying in some places it's described as a nursing home, but on crime time they refer to it as a mental hospital, and that he wandered out of the mental hospital and disappeared, and they're like, if he's in a mental hospital mental illness could easily be hereditary, and that Joan was experiencing all of these similar things. So, and this was when he was 58 years old, mind you, so um, I don't know if, I really don't know if it was a nursing home or a mental hospital, just sharing something that I heard on Crime Time. And I think that um, all of them are plausible. The problem within exploring this mystery is whichever angle you go down, whichever pathway you choose to explore just leads to more questions. What do you think happened to Joan Rish? You can say in the comments section down below. And that's all for me now. You can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can share anything you want there. Follow the show on Facebook. And until next time.